Lately in our neighborhood, I've started to notice there's a lot of people getting new roofs. And I'm like, why is there suddenly a need for new roofs? We had a very light winter. We didn't have a lot of snow, not any hail or anything like that. And today someone knocked on my door and said, oh, we're doing roofing in the neighborhood. Have you heard about our offer to do a free appraisal? And I was like, oh, that's why people are getting their roofs redone. I'm telling you, Reed, the good old-fashioned door-to-door selling still works. I'm glad to see it. I mean, the milkman coming back as well or totally unrelated. I have some magazine subscriptions I'd like to tell you as I'm going to raise money. I do like the way, though, especially with the lawn landscape folks, they position it as if, if you don't do this, you're like the only neighbor here not doing it. Like you realize that, right? Like everybody else has bought into this scenario except for you. Listen, if you're fine with your family and young child dying because the roof caves in, I mean, that's, that's on you. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 372. I'm getting close to auctioneer status on these intros. I feel like I continue to do it faster each time. Everybody that listens has already heard this now 372 times. And so I think people know where they are, right? It's on the episode title, but still. Like it's some big unveil that we're doing this topic. It's like, well, they they see it. It's like right there on the screen in front of them. But nonetheless, sorry, it's a Friday. You know, it's been a long week. Getting a little punchy here towards the end of the week. But no, should make for a good show. Super excited. Uh, I think this is an interesting topic, certainly, and super thrilled to have folks either join us for the first time or back for maybe the second or 200th time for another episode of Touchpoint. So again, you've heard this, so repeat after me. Touchpoint.health is the website. Sign up over there for the TPS report, five articles to get your week started. Hopefully that is something that is a little bit of value add. For you as you get rolling each week. We'd love to hear back from you. I would say these days and age, LinkedIn, probably the best way to do that. But we will pause here. Again, would love the feedback. Love for you to subscribe to the TPS report. We'll pause here, let you jump over to touchpoint.health or jot it down. And uh, we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide 
and build a reputation that performs for you. Okay, Reed, another episode about AI. It's inevitable. We have to talk about the topic of AI, the technology. There's a reason why, because of the extreme rapid adoption in our space. I I think this is the most unprecedented adoption of technology I have seen in my lifetime. It's moved so very, very fast. And I'm not sure, you know, that whole concept of Moore's Law about things get done much quicker, you know, as, as time goes by exponentially. I'm wondering if this is sort of a reflection of how quick new technology is going to be embraced and adopted across our industry. That's interesting. Well, I think you got two different adoption curves, right? Like us as a company or a provider or whatever you want to call it, and then adoption from the consumer's point of view. Some things they don't have a choice. It happens to them. Mm -hmm. There's other adoption that requires effort and energy from the patient, from the consumer. But I think AI is an interesting one. I'll be curious. Oh, let's fast forward the tape. 18 months, maybe? Yeah. I, I don't know. I'll just be interested to see kind of exactly what that looks like at that point. Again, so much of this is about convenience, even in my mind, as I'm thinking about, you know, how do we prompt people with that next best action? And selfishly, you know, thinking about that from the from the vantage point of like patient acquisition or reactivation or retention type efforts, you know, business growth, if you will. But honestly, I mean, from a consumer experience standpoint, it's like that that trade-off, you know, around this idea of benefit. If you can succinctly tell me what I need to do next and make it easy to then take that action, why would I not want that? I think in general, AI has had has seen a lot of consumer adoption, I guess at least through some, you know, the consumer friendly tools of ChatGPT and generative search and all of these things now, but it's also been rapidly driven into our space as well. Today's topic, we're going to talk about like, are we ready for it? And specifically, we're going to talk about governance, which is always a fun topic. It is a fun topic. I'm not even sure that I can completely articulate what the governance should look like around AI. We see it somewhere uh, in our organizations, maybe around a project or a certain technology, or the deployment, or management of of technology, maybe data, etc. You kind of pull AI into the equation even. Maybe it's not that different. Maybe I'm just talking in a circle here, but I I think, I don't know. This is going to be interesting to look at as we start to see roles like the chief AI officer and stuff like that start to pop up. New roles starting to pop up around this. So let's first start off with like just trying to get a, a pulse of the of the state of the state. There was uh, an article we're referencing uh, that's entitled Healthcare Startups Are Rushing to Sell AI to Hospitals, but a new survey suggests that many hospitals aren't ready for it. And it's based on a survey that was done by UPMC and Class Research, where they surveyed 34 U.S. health system leaders, and only 16% of them reported having system-wide policies for AI usage and data access. I mean, they called out, obviously, that you know there are some broader guidelines in place that, that might apply to AI, but that the majority, 65% specifically, don't have a policy directed at AI specifically. Some leaders say they haven't developed those policies because we're at the early stages of AI adoption. 
And others indicated they're waiting for federal regulations on AI before issuing their own guidelines, which I think is interesting because this is typically how technology adoption occurs in health systems is they either wait for it to be sort of a an ever-present technology, maybe a little bit more mature than this is, or they're waiting for some guidelines from federal regulations because, of course, tied to that is the privacy, the security, and not to mention the payments behind it. It's interesting, too, that we're going to jump into an, another article that's kind of related to this that is talking about where the federal government is in terms of regulating AI. And this article is called Artificial Intelligence is Making Critical Healthcare Decisions, but the sheriff is MIA. Nice. I think I have a shirt that says that. <laughs> the sheriff is MIA. They're talking here about the fact that the government slow walked the regulation around AI. They say because of funding and staffing and challenges that are facing the Food and Drug Administration, not only in writing, but also enforcing the rules is such a vast and, and kind of broad task to actually administer. Well, and here's the interesting thing about this article. It points out that unlike medical devices or drugs, AI software is continually changing. Rather than issuing a one-time approval, the FDA has a desire to monitor AI products over time, something that is never done before in this proactive way. Yeah, it's, uh, it continues to be a unique challenge. I think because of the evolution, right, this isn't like a one and done kind of a thing because we don't really know where this is headed. There's a call out that like, yes, there's been some things around like medical device makers, but there's not this broader framework around the adoption and that's probably because it's easier to draw the box maybe around medical device. And there's probably funding and, and a push there as well. There is. And the FDA realizes that in order to do something this broad and big, it requires a whole different retooling of their organization. And quite frankly, a shift in focus. And obviously, when you do this, the conversation kind of spurs around, well, we need more staff and people to do this. Well, that's something that's not really politically um, in goodwill right now to increase the FDA. And in fact, the article calls out a report from the Government Accountability Office, which is sort of the watchdog arm of Congress around where they spend the money. And it says the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, says FDA wants more power to request AI performance data and to set guardrails for algorithms in specific ways than its traditional risk assessment framework for drugs and med devices allows. And you can imagine that in and of itself sounds like a complicated request, right? It's not just simply, I need to increase my budget by 10%. It's like, I need to change dramatically how I'm doing business. I have not thought a lot about this, right? Like this is not, uh, when I start thinking about AI, the governance of it, and especially as it relates to the FDA, I'm not sure has ever entered my mind. Yeah, I know. But they do say in here that, you know, because of this, because of the advancements in AI, there are larger gaps relative to what is being regulated. And in some cases, they have no authority over it, right? So you think about like the summation of doctor's notes or some of these clinical administrative tasks and things like that. Should there be some oversight there? I guess, like, what does that look like? Kind of a new new thought. Well, yeah, and even the FDA commissioner, Robert Khalif, says that some in the industry have proposed a different approach. 
the creation of this public-private assurance labs or different consortiums, probably starting in major universities or academic health centers, which could validate and monitor AI use in healthcare. And the intention here is to certify AI safety and efficacy, but there's a challenge with that, right? Well, yeah. I mean, like, how do you even do that? Like, I understand philosophically, like, we should do these things. But then when you get, like, you know, everybody's like, oh, devil's in the details. Well, I mean, it really is. Like, how do you practically execute against this? And even if you do set up these, like, test labs to try out AI solutions, those are in very unique places, academic medical centers, large institutions, universities. Some AI experts have pointed out that by doing this, AI, if it's tested in a major university campus, it might not work that well in a small rural hospital application. That's interesting. I haven't really thought about like the care setting piece of this. I mean, maybe like by service line or, or those types of things, but not necessarily geographically what that would mean in like a critical access facility or something like they're kind of calling out here. That's that's interesting. Well, let's end this part of our conversation here on a quote from this article by Mark Sendak, who's a population health and data scientist lead at Duke University's Institute for Health Innovation. He recently told senators at the finance committee hearing on artificial intelligence this month that occurred, he said, you know, as a practicing physician, that environments are different and every healthcare organization needs to be able to locally govern AI. I think this kind of speaks to the fact that a sense of local governance, Reed, is an important next step for organizations that are embracing AI. And why don't we take a brief pause here. When we come back, you and I will talk a little bit about developing an AI governance framework. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. You know, we're still trying to make sense of a lot of this, certainly, and what does this mean for our organization, et cetera. And, and regulatory frameworks are still TBD to some extent. I think we have to start thinking internally about well, what, what do we think about this and how do we want to orchestrate and coordinate our efforts around not just AI, but just kind of emergent technologies, maybe. And again, we've talked a long time about this idea that in most cases, we'll find that technology is outpacing the law. And so that's kind of what we're talking about here. And so we've got a couple of couple of articles here that we'll kind of reference and talk through, one from Fast Company, one from Enterprise Talk, best practices for AI governance, and then building an AI governance framework, respectively. So there's some commonality here, right? They say, both of them indicate that a solid AI governance strategy will efficiently handle data quality and security, and when properly implemented, 
It could build trust in data and systems at all levels within an organization. Okay, so it sounds good so far. Yeah, I'm in. Yeah, and it also says a good governance framework boosts employee confidence in the decisions they make with the data. These strategies also enhance accuracy in the AI models, proper alignment with ethics, management, and security to minimize reputational risk. I mean, this sounds like a good governance framework is an important piece when we're looking at an emergent technology like this one. So we took the liberty of kind of carving out some of the tenets of a framework that both of these articles and other articles kind of refer to. And this is also based a little bit on our own personal um, experience. The first big category is one that's true depending on uh, uh, different things you're working on, but it, it stretches across a lot of different topics, but it's the idea of transparency. So just in and of itself, what is happening, right? We talk about pricing transparency. Well, it's very similar here. How does it work? How does it make decisions? How do we get to the answer we got to, right? So that the stakeholders and, and others should be informed on how this works, but also what limitations exist, use cases, et cetera. And what maybe what are even the data inputs that it takes to, to get to these conclusions? Yeah. So what we're talking about here is having transparency and documenting the policies, the procedures, best practices, you know, being as much transparent as we can with this technology. Like every good governance framework, obviously you want to communicate the vision, mission, goals of why you're adopting this in your organization and how that impacts all of the stakeholders involved. By the way, that includes patients. What other things should be in this policy document, Reed? If you think about most governance documents, it's you know who's responsible for what, the structures, the roles, the accountability. Again, if you had a question, who do you go to? Like, you don't overthink this necessarily, right? But it just because it's around the topic of AI, there's still some very practical documentation and guidance you can put in place around some of these things. It's also how frequently are you going to review your AI systems? How do you onboard? How do you test? How do you phase out AI systems? How do you track success? You know, all of this leads to this whole concept of transparency. So that's one of the tenets of a framework. The second tenet is around data governance and feedback mechanisms. You need to ensure that the data that you're acquiring and using is in accordance with regulations and laws, and that it's appropriately secured and safeguarded. Makes sense. Problem is, like we just talked about, the regulatory laws part is still kind of catching up, right? So how do you extrapolate some of the things that you know from other areas of the business, like cybersecurity maybe, or something like that, when you start talking about safeguarding and securing? Again, don't overthink this. I think you're you're going to have to appreciate the idea that uh, you're going to have to make some assumptions and pull some things together that maybe work more broadly across your enterprise. And maybe the security piece is is a little bit easier to solve for if you've got that in place more broadly and ideas around that in place more broadly. Uh, and so that's a really important component here, right? The data, how do you get feedback to, to the data, et cetera? And again, just because it's AI doesn't mean that like your normal risk models and questions you ask don't don't apply here. You've got to change it. You know, maybe you do, but it's somewhere to at least start. Uh, speaking of risk, the next big category is risk management. So, you know, if you think about governance in general, risk management provides really the idea of that analysis. How do we understand what the risk is to the organization? and how things are working. So they talk in you know some of these articles around the idea of behaviors and beliefs even, 
organizations have to think about this idea that um, you know there is a process and there is training that needs to happen to really kind of bring people along. Mm-hmm. Typically, if you're involved in a lot of these conversations, you're the tip of the spear relative to the rest of the organization. This whole technology really changes things that are happening within your organization. And so you, the culture is the conduit that can change behaviors, norms, and attitudes. If you think about deploying these consistent, repeatable processes and conduct regular training to promote critical thinking about AI and reminding people about the risks involved with this technology, that's going to go a long ways here. It's kind of interesting to think about risk management in the adoption of a technology, but this has been done time memorial with like EMRs and with other types of technology that we bring in. I remember you and I talking about this around social media, right? Risk management is a critical part of a governance framework. Yeah, that's a good call out on the social piece. I mean, really any of this is just innovative that changes the way that we think about our business. That leads to another tenet around stakeholder communication and ongoing education. You want to ensure, not only ensure that transparency, as we talked about, but you need to communicate regularly with relevant parties. Develop policies governing AI to communicate with customers and stakeholders. A big thing here I've seen a lot of organizations starting to do is post their AI policies online for the consumers to see. That's a part of that transparency. It seems a little risky to do that, though. But also third-party partners that you're working with. Let them know what your policies are and where, where your limits are. This works really well when you're onboarding, let's say, maybe a new generative AI solution to help your marketing communications team, because you're not going to develop you know, your own innovative AI solution in your environment. Now, when you're bringing in a third-party vendor, it's like saying, these are our guidelines. This is the types of solutions and, and the risks that we have around adopting this technology. It gives some good guardrails for where you want to go. But then there's also education, right? Typically, if you're the one having these conversations, you're in a very different place, right, than the rest of the organization. And so, you know, I have found that communicating the thoughts, the goals, the process, the thinking around certain initiatives or ideas, you have to do it to a point that you feel like you're running the risk of being repetitive. And so around this idea of education, it's that plus the education piece, right? They're actually informing and educating folks and bringing them up to speed where they can have critical thoughts and and be able to process and actually contribute to the process in a little bit of a different way than just being informed would be. Here's another call out from these articles. One of them said, while we're communicating to the employees that are performing the tools or using the tools and, and understanding that, AI governance is still the responsibility of executive teams. They have to own the risks associated with the development and deployment of AI systems. And I think that is why you're hearing about this rise of the AI officer, right? Or the chief AI officer or what have you. Or maybe the chief digital officer now has that as part of their responsibilities. It's because ultimately ownership has to land at the executive level. The last kind of call out we'll make here is around the idea of regulatory compliance and accountability. Again, I don't know that we have all the answers here on the regulatory side, but I think an interesting thought process here is that people and the organizations in which they work have to you know, be accountable to each stage of the process. 
not just like once the AI is up and running, like, hey, once we have this thing, then let's all decide how we want to govern it. It's even the build and intentionality like up to that part of the equation. Regularly reviewing. In fact, one of the articles calls uh, out to do to require manual reviewing of your AI systems to ensure they're unbiased and trustworthy, you know, and they say that this manual review will be the first line of defense against discrimination and bias. That sounds like a job that is important, but maybe I'm not sure exactly if that's the right approach, but I mean, what are you going to do? Have AI monitor and review? I'm not sure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Let's just, I can write a prompt (laughs) to review the prompts that were written. (laughs) Also, employ fairness, compliance, and system governance teams to evaluate various variables. The good news is we have a lot of this already in infrastructure in place within an organization. Mm-hmm. This is really leveraging them to this new technology, kind of pointing them around that so they can help so they can help us to understand the responsible adoption of AI. For an external IT team, for example, an active screening process can help ensure that compliance. I don't know if exciting is the right word, but it is, it creates a fair amount of opportunity. I think, Chris, I always think back, and again, this is just, a, this is a dumb example, but, you know, people would point to you or I or, you know, folks like Ed or, or Lee or different people that have been doing this a long time and call us social media experts. Now, this was, I don't know, 10 years ago. And, and the truth in that was really the fact that we were just there first, it's not that we were like, you know, so much smarter than anybody else or something like that. Well, fast forward, here we are again. You're at the beginning, you know, kind of the front end of a lot of this. And so you've got the ability to really influence certainly the process, your organization, your team, and quite honestly, maybe even the regulatory environment, you know, depending on, you know, your level of involvement. So, I think it just creates a real interesting opportunity for folks. I think so too. And yeah, you're right. Governance is not really the most interesting things that are involved, but governance really is critical for ensuring that we're adopting this technology responsibly. It's what we have to do. And if you want to learn more about you know different approaches and strategies, this is a little plug. I am going to be doing an AI workshop at the upcoming Healthcare Marketing Physician Strategy Summit. And governance is a big part of what we're going to talk about. And we're going to share some examples of how organizations do it. With that, I want to take a pause here. I think we should, we have a great interview coming up with Patty Riskind, who's the CEO of Orbita, an AI product that many health systems are adopting for productivity purposes. And we talk a lot about AI adoption. We address governance, but we also really emphasize how uh, organizations are starting to value the solutions that they're using and uh, deriving success from there. So we'll take a brief pause. We'll listen to that interview, and then you and I will be back to close out the show. Well, welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of the show. And today I'm excited to have someone new to the podcast, but someone that I've co-presented with before in the past, and that is someone that I guess I'm considering you now a kind of a, a good friend of mine, and that's Patty Riskin. Patty, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. I, I'd like to think that we're good friends now. 
Yeah, well, we at least have a lot in common, and we've been collaborating on a number of things. And we'll talk about at the end of this interview uh, some things we're going to be collaborating on in the future. But before we jump into today's interview, I'd love for you to share a little bit about yourself and what you're doing now and a little bit about your company. I'm Patty Riskind, and I've worked in the healthcare, technology, data and analytics space my entire career, which has been over 30 years. It's hard to believe. I am currently at a company called Orbita, which is a conversational AI company. But before that, I have a long history of working in patient engagement and patient experience. I actually founded the first electronic survey company in healthcare called Patient Impact. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we did electronic surveying for ambulatory facilities. And we ended up getting acquired by Presgany. I spent about eight years at Presgany and helped quadruple the size of Presgany by bringing electronic surveying to complement paper surveys and telephone surveys. And after Presgany, I went to Qualtrics and was the head of global healthcare at Qualtrics and established their healthcare vertical and helped kind of challenge and bring some competition to the patient experience space. And after that, I was recruited to Orbita to be the CEO. Orbita, we like to say we're a a company that helps make navigating healthcare easier. And we use automation with empathy. So Mm -hmm. we take advantage of generative AI, conversational AI, and machine learning to automate workflows from an access perspective as well as a care management perspective. So we help patients find a doctor, symptom checking, schedule appointments, pre-visit paperwork. And then for more complex surgeries, we help hold the hand of a patient throughout to make sure that they understand what they need to do, what to expect, and so that they show up prepared for surgery. And all of this is intended to help reduce the administrative burden on those that work inside of the healthcare system. So reduce repetitive, sometimes cumbersome tasks. That's a really good use case of of artificial intelligence and the AI systems that are out there. And I'm pleased when you, you brought it up, because whenever we talk about AI, a lot of people immediately spring to generative AI, right? That's yes. like what they're thinking about. I mean... I mean, this is a week after the Super Bowl, we're recording this. And, you know, the, the Microsoft's co-pilot was all over the ads, right? Right. Tell us a little bit about your definition of AI. AI can take many forms. And you mentioned large language models. Large language models take vast amounts of text and compile it to learn how to generate human-like language. Natural language processing is a combination of large language models, and it's used to help, I guess, replicate how people talk. And so large language models are used in things like chatbots and other interfaces is probably the best way to put it. Conversational AI takes advantage of natural language processing, and dialogue management. So understanding how people speak, and it also takes sentiment analysis into account, and 
it's used and improved by being used, basically. So there's machine learning that comes into play. So with conversational AI, you're leveraging multiple AI components to prompt a conversation that can take people down a specific path and get them to do things. Generative AI, which ChatGPT made a household word, that actually compiles all of this text-based content, or in this case with generative AI, it can also involve videos as well as images and audio. And it takes all of this and actually produces content. So it's almost like it's thinking and it can respond based on the knowledge base that it has, which is vast and huge, to answer questions and to engage with folks. So when I say Orbita uses generative AI, in large parts, we're using it to ingest content really quickly and we can ingest huge amounts of content that's then used by our conversational AI in order to engage with, say, a patient to help them do things like scheduling an appointment or understanding their disease or being prepared for surgery. So there's a lot of different forms that this stuff can take. And that's really why AI is so you know, transformative in our industry, I would say. Yeah, ChatGPT helped us jump the shark in terms of what it is, but there's many different applications people are using in health systems and even providers in adopting AI. Love for you to share like kind of what you're seeing. We've actually been using AI for some time. So if you think about predictive analytics and what hospitals have been doing in terms of analyzing data and forecasting demand for services, that's been around for some time. What's happened with the generative AI boom, we'll call it, is that now AI can be used to analyze massive amounts of data and it, the applications range from you know personalizing medic- medicine in terms of unique care plans for patients, automating uh, how, let's say, diagnostic imaging in terms of x-rays and MRIs and pathologies to reduce the administrative burden on doctors from having to do that. Now machines can do it directly. Other ways it can be used in terms of fraud and security. So we know how important HIPAA is in healthcare. AI can be used to look at patterns to see what's changed or if something's different that can raise the alarm. Clinical decision support in terms of analyzing data to look at helping physicians with diagnosis and understanding medication options. So it can take a gazillion different forms. Orbita specifically is looking at it from an administrative perspective. So we use chatbots as well as text and email and voice to interact with a patient and reduce the administrative burden on staff in order to make the workflow smoother, more efficient, faster. That's how we use it. But there's a bunch of different applications out there. And now it's taking the form of avatars and other things. So it's an exciting time. It's also a little scary, but... Obviously, this is something that's really exciting. And, you know, a couple episodes ago, Reed and I were talking about how more and more patients are wanting to lean in on self-service and doing things to themselves. But oftentimes that doesn't translate naturally if you just automate a process online right, that could still be a little bit burdensome on the individual. 
I could see like this combination of AI models, LLMs, NLPs, generative AI, conversational AI could really help to improve that overall experience for the patients. But there's also an application on the back end because it also automates how providers and people that work within health systems be more productive too, right? Absolutely. You know, nurses are overwhelmed with having to do so much with so little. And, you know, an example we have is, you know, we do post-discharge follow-up so that nurses don't have to make those phone calls. We can do that outreach using text and email as well as voice to engage with patients. And we've seen something like an 80% of the patients don't need additional follow-up. So that frees up a nurse to do 20, you know, 20% that do need follow-up. Those are the ones that get the phone call. Just from a making life easier, and we know that burnout is chronic in the industry. So how do we make it easier for providers? How do we simplify things? We work with another client where we automate the intake process and we customize those intake forms, we'll call it, to the unique conditions of the patient. And on average, it's saving this practice 45 minutes per physician per day. So their ability to see more patients and generate incremental revenue while just making life easier is pretty substantial. It's no wonder then, right, that this is having such a huge boon in our space along with other industries. But one thing, Patty, you and I both know, we're not embracing it as quickly as other industries are. In fact, there's there's still a little bit of a concern around AI and many organizations are starting to think about how do we adopt this responsibly? How do we use these tools the right way? How does this engage with patient safety? Tell us your perspective. How do you see our industry embracing AI in general? I think it's it's potentially speeding up. I think that we're seeing more and more chief digital officers, chief technology officers and the like saying, wow, we've got to take advantage of this because there's not enough people to get what we need to get done. And so how can we take advantage of what technology and automation can bring to bear? I think the concerns are legitimate that, you know, we've heard about hallucinations and how generative AI can make stuff up. So you have to be really careful and make sure that the information that's going into the model is vetted and authenticated and accurate so that what comes out isn't garbage. <laughs> so, so it's super important that there are guardrails and there is a, an ability to, I'll say, turn the volume up and down in terms of how much leeway you want to give AI to come up with answers. So generative AI, you can say, you know, go, go crazy and let it, let it figure it out on its own, or you can dial it down and only reference the content that is put into the model. And our clients are pretty conservative and want to make sure that we're not directing the patient in the wrong direction. So as a result, we tend to ingest a bunch of content and then we will summarize and draw conclusions from all the content and deliver that in a conversational way, say to a patient. But we're ensuring that the source of the information is also shared. So if a patient wants the, to validate and wants to drill into things further, we provide a link or we provide a reference so that they can understand where that information came from and that it's 
Correct. You know, the way you describe that, that sounds really useful because we're living a day and age where sometimes we just need to skim through stuff to get to the point, right? And other times we do want to go deeper into it. And it's hard to sometimes meet patients where they're at. You know, I've been in marketing a long time. We create these personas and we say, you know, these types of people are deep readers and, you know, uh, uh, of information or consumers of information or people with cancer or other kind of difficult uh, medical challenges. They tend to read more and research more, but that's not always the case. In this case, what it seems like the application of AI here is to to get the right information to the right people, but also give them the ability to go deeper if they need to. Yes. And you made me think of another, I mean, health literacy is a challenge. And the beauty of this technology is that you can tell it to accommodate a certain reading level, a certain level of sophistication. And so it can adapt and deliver the message or the content or the interaction in a way that people can understand. The ability for someone to, let's say, present themselves and say, I speak Chinese, and then the virtual assistant or the chatbot or whatever they're engaging with can then convert and talk in that language or you know, relay the conversation in that language and do it at a level that the recipient can understand. So this can be super valuable. And, I, and I've heard stories that I have friends who have, after your physical, you always get all of your test results. And half the time, you don't know what anything means. You can copy and paste. I don't know. From a HIPAA perspective, make sure it's blinded. But you can copy and paste into ChatGPT. And ChatGPT can summarize for you what the lab results mean and yeah. what you should be concerned about. So think about from a communication perspective a physician or a hospital or whomever can figure out a better way to communicate with a patient, to engage that patient, to help make sure they understand what's happening with their body, and then take the appropriate next step in terms of addressing whatever their situation might require. You know, I think that's really interesting. It kind of leads to this whole concept of the five C's of healthcare. Communication, capabilities, convenience, channels, and care, if you think about that in terms of digital health. And what that means is improving communications, improving the capability of understanding those kinds of communications, Mm -hmm. doing it in a convenient way in the channel that they want with the empathy involved. Yes. It sounds to me like AI is sort of the panacea of all of this, right? <laughs> well, it could be. Yeah, <laughs> if done right, right? Yeah, and that's that's the key piece. You have to figure out how to take advantage of it so that it enhances and it streamlines versus makes things more complicated. And that it's safe is probably the best way to put it, that, that people can feel confident that what they're accessing and what they're using is credible, is you know valid, and, and secure. That's the important piece here because we still have a lot of, I don't know the right way to say it, myths about AI, or maybe some of them are true, right? There's we have the risks, inherent risks in AI, or concerns that people have. How do you see? our industry kind of adopting to those risks? Well, I mean, one of the big myths is that AI is going to replace jobs. And I think if nothing else, we've seen new positions come about in order to put governance in place and guardrails in place related to AIs. I think, you know, when the 
when the iPhone came out, there was concern. There, you know, there's always been something as as technology makes strides forward. There's always some fear and some apprehension related to what does this mean to me, and is this going to make me, you know, obsolete? And I think what's clear is there's still going to be a lot of jobs that are needed <laughs> to work with AI and to work around AI. There are myths related to you know AI is like a human. And I think that there will always be the need for humans as it relates to AI. Yes, it's amazing how much, I'll call it data content can be ingested, but what comes with that is bias. And so whatever was used, whether it's a scientific experiment or it's an article in the paper, there is human bias that comes into play. Mm-hmm. And therefore using AI, as much as we want our inputs to be clean and fair, there's always going to be some interpretation and some a human being is going to have to use rationale and reasoning in order to pick and choose what they really need to take away from whatever the AI can dish out. And to be fair, there's been bias in healthcare even before technology came yes. around, right? Yes, yes. So maybe it's what it's doing is it's it potentially could be amplifying already existing bias. Well, that's exactly right. So we have to be careful of that. And we have to be conscious of it. You can't just take things at face value and run with it sometimes. You know, yes and no, if you know that your source of information is a strictly factual. And, you know, what medications can I prescribe for this condition? And you get the list. You need to take into consideration too, well, based on if, whether it's a man or a woman, or if it's, you know, a child or an adult, you know, there's different components you have to take into account to know, is this the right, let's say, medication for this patient? And that's always going to require a human being. Yeah. And so that means like, you know, the fear of us, our jobs going away is not that it's our jobs are changing. That's exactly right. I was talking to someone the other day. They were saying, well, I'm not really sure if we're ready for AI. And I said, sorry, the toothpaste is already out of the tube. (laughs) Right? It's already there. I don't think there's any going back. So now it's just how how can we leverage it? How can we take advantage of it? How can we make life better, both for those that work in inside of the healthcare system and for those that we serve? When we look at like all of these different AI technologies that are out there, everybody's doing AI right? Everybody's introducing AI solutions into us, in, in, into their platforms. I think, you know, go to every website and they're AI driven now, right? You know, I'm, or at least they say so. At yeah. least they say so, right? <laughs> but I'm wondering when you look at like the technology stack in a healthcare environment right now, a lot of it is over indexed on things like EMRs and, and, you know, like these big enterprise types of applications do you think that those tools or, or those big enterprise infrastructure applications are, is, is it going to be like an ecosystem where everybody lives together? So a company like Orbita, early stage company, we're, we're smaller, we're nimble. We pride ourselves on being flexible and accommodating our customers. We're able to get things done quickly. The large electronic health record systems, they're all getting into AI and they're all saying that they can do it. I think with any large company, it just takes longer. I I do think eventually, hopefully, the EHRs will take advantage of AI. And, you know, a lot of folks use certain electronic health record systems. And so they need to adapt. And we'll see maybe 
the ecosystem will change because perhaps there'll be acquisitions and consolidation. But I also think we're seeing players like Microsoft and Google and others coming into the space who had they've tried in the past to play in healthcare, and I think they're trying again. So I do think that the whole technological infrastructure that hospitals and health systems and medical groups leverage now is going to continue to morph and change. And hopefully the technology will help make things easier and more efficient and user-friendly. My opinion on this is you always need an ecosystem that has like the large infrastructure things, mm-hmm. but then also the ability to innovate on the kind of the the edges, right? In order to make connect those systems together or make it easier. And a lot of the, I'll call it early stage companies bring that innovation and are willing to take risks that big companies that have been around forever are slower to. <laughs> so. Right. Absolutely. But there's stuff to be learned. And so I do think eventually the large players will adopt or acquire the smaller players. Right. So as you look forward, it's hard to predict in this technology. It's hard to predict in this space generally where it's at. Two years ago, we weren't talking about AI and now we are. But, you know, when you, when you look forward, like, where do you think we're going? Where do you think what's what's going to be like? Well, ideally, we make life easier. <laughs> so... If I need an appointment, I can find a doctor who's got availability and I can get in quickly. I mean, from a patient perspective, I can understand my diagnosis. I can understand why it's important to be compliant with whatever treatment protocol. And so it just becomes much easier for a patient to ideally stay healthy. And then on the flip side, from a clinician perspective, my life is easier because I can spend my time with my patients versus having to do all the work inputting into the electronic health record system or you know doing all the follow-up and the phone calls or whatever it might entail. So my hope would be it helps people inside of the healthcare system, you know, really play to the top of their license. And it helps patients get the care that they need appropriately and in a way that makes sense to them and hopefully results in better outcomes. I think that's the ideal promise of what technology and healthcare is. Yes, that would be. So we all kind of strive for that. Exactly. Well, Patty, this has been a really interesting conversation. I always enjoy talking to you. Um, I'd love for, uh, before we leave today, for you to share a little bit more about how people can get a hold of you online, learn more about your company, but also maybe tell them a little bit about the uh, workshop that we're going to be doing uh, at the upcoming Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit. Well, to get in touch with me, feel free to email me at patty, P-A-T-T-Y dot riskind, R-I-S like Sam, K-I-N-D like dog at Orbita, O-R-B-I-T-A, Dot AI, and feel free to visit our website, which is orbita.ai. I'm super excited for our workshop that we're going to be having in April in Las Vegas. We will be discussing, you know, what is AI and how can it be used? So kind of going deeper than the conversation that we have today. And we have a panel of speakers that will discuss specifically what they're doing at Providence, at um, Hackensack Meridian, and we're going to engage the audience so that we can share best practices and what people are learning and where people are at. It should be a really 
lively, exciting, and interesting session. It should be a fun workshop, I will tell you. The thing that I'm most excited about, I'm kind of a nerd in this regard, is talking about governance and how to how to build consensus among an organization that's stoically very conservative. So yes, yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a really fun conversation. So if you're there in, in Vegas in April, please attend our pre-conference workshop. Patty, thank you again for spending some time with us today and sharing your insights. It's been a really great conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Chris. Special thanks to Patty for coming on the show. I'm always interesting to hear from folks that are uh, in the space and you know have a different point of view, or maybe not a different point of view, but different vantage point than maybe you or I do, or, or some of the other listeners. So great conversation. And again, sign up for the TPS report because again, not only do you have links to the to the articles each week, but you mentioned the Healthcare Marketing Physician Strategy Summit that's coming up in April. You and I will both be there. You mentioned uh, the workshop you were doing. There's going to be some other ways that if you do attend, you'll be forced to listen to Chris and I speak from a stage. If this is not enough, you know, (laughs) this is not enough. Anyway, no, hopefully you'll do that. And again, quick link there in some upcoming industry conferences, that being the next one uh, listed there in the TPS report. Good stuff there. Okay. Recommendations. What do you, what do you got today? Yeah, Reed, I'm going to recommend a show. I'm not completely through with uh, this. uh, I guess it's a mini series that's streaming on Netflix called Griselda. No. So I'm a big fan. I watched the Narcos series on Netflix. Did you ever watch those? I did not watch Narcos, but I I know what you're talking about. That's actually, thank you for saying that. I was going to add that back to my list. So, yeah. Narcos is about, you know, the Colombian drug world and 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 the u.s intervention in that and all that it was really interesting it was a i guess it was a docudrama right it was based on real life yeah events. yeah sure so griselda seems to be like sort of a, a sequel to that although it's not related Ooh. it's an american biographical crime drama starring sofia vergara we all know you know as griselda blanco a notorious colombian drug lord that fled colombia and landed in Miami and set up an entire approach about how she's going to basically, you know, create her drug empire within Miami. It's really acted out very well. I mean, the acting is amazing. Oh, cool. It's a compelling plot. Great storyline. I will have to say, like, you have to watch it because half of the show is in Spanish. So oh, subtitles. great. Yeah, but it's great. I think it's great, though. Really, really interesting. Completely stylized the right way. And the storylines are so, so compelling. There are, I do believe there are like eight episodes. So something very much bingeable. Uh, they're about a less than an hour. And it was just, it's 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 another one that my wife and I, we just cannot watch, wait to watch the, the next one. We're about halfway through. We love it. It's If you're ever interested in any kind of like documented crime dramas, or fan of the Narco series, I would strongly recommend watching Griselda on Netflix. That's my recommendation. I like it on Netflix. Okay, cool. I'm making a making a note there. I'm I'm also going to recommend a docu series, mini series. I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, so it's on Apple TV. Uh, it's called Blackbird. Have you heard of this? I have heard of it. I haven't seen it though. So Blackbird. Um, now this is a this is a one and done. This is not going to be like multiple seasons because it's it's literally about a particular event. So it's based on a true story 
Uh, I think there was a book maybe written about this back in 2010, I believe. And it's about a individual. Uh, I won't, I'm going to try not to spoil the whole thing here. Uh, an individual gets sentenced uh, to prison and he gets this offer to try to elicit a confession from a suspected serial killer who is also in prison, right? So it's, I think, six episodes, if I'm remembering right. And so really it follows the story of this particular individual working for the FBI inside of prison to try to elicit this confession from a from a serial killer. And again, based on true story, uh, I won't spoil it. Of course, you can Google Blackbird and, and read the read the wiki entry. And I think the two main characters have already been put in into new shows. Like, so I, again, people liked them. They did a good job. You know, obviously there's not gonna be a season two of this. And so they've already been uh, recast in other, other uh, shows coming up. Yeah. Yeah, great. yeah, yeah. Ninety-eight uh, yeah. on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm seeing here. So how about that? That's pretty good. That's pretty good, boy. And you know, if people listening to the show, they must realize that you and I both have a sort of a interest in crime dramas. I suppose it's probably didn't bode well for me uh, that the government's watching my uh, you know watch history of all the serial killer stuff. But no, I'm just Greg Kinnear's in this. Huge Greg Kinnear fan. No, not really. But well, I mean, I am. But that has nothing but Ray Liotta is also in it. But uh, anyway, be sure to check it out. That sounds great. I'm going to definitely. Check All right. It. Well, thanks folks. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, thanks for uh, all the support. Again, rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, coworker. Still the number one way you can help us uh, grow the listenership of the show. Hope we see you in Viva Las Vegas uh, here in just a few weeks, honestly, kind of mid-April for the Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit. So again, reach out, let us know if you're going to be there. Connect with us on LinkedIn. It's probably the best way to do that. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.